Welcome to the Business Addicts Podcast, where the stakes are high, talk is cheap, and results are on the other side of commitment. Hosted by a former addict, myself, and I'm his wife, Jamie. We uncover addicts' mindsets, showing that the talents you've created in your struggle will be the superpowers you leverage to heal your deepest wounds. Listen to former addicts share stories of how they've flipped the switch, including insights into how much we can believe in ourselves. For those of you affected by addiction, we support your desire to help the addict in your life by raising the stakes and creating emotional barriers. Hello, today we are privileged to have David Marion and Dana Golden on the podcast. Both of them are, they are a couple affected by addiction and they have a lot of background in helping people with addiction as well. So we're going to dive into that, but I want to start with you, David. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. A little about myself now or what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like today. Yeah, sure. Before the addiction and then we'll go into more about you as you are now after, uh, later in the call. Well, I think I always had the genetic predisposition at an early young age, knowing that something wasn't right. I often say I came out of the manufacturer's plant a little bit defective. I knew something okay. wasn't connecting. I didn't fit in the way I would have liked to. Okay. I didn't see life the same lens, I guess, that my brother and sister did. I was always excited with things. Started drinking and gambling at a very young age. Give you a little background on that. Some of the guys that I drank with, my next door neighbor, whose his nickname was Pickles, right? Pickles was a guy that's a year older than me, and Pickles used to drink Listerine out of the bottle, put his pants on with the zipper on the back, and I was asking this guy for direction in life, okay, <laughs> at a young age. Yeah. So um, started using at a pretty young age. I liked the way it made me feel. You know, I've often heard people say I like to have other people like I used to have other people like me. And at that yeah. point, I don't even know if it mattered. I used because I knew it made me feel good. And whether people liked me or not at that time, I probably wasn't in touch with. So started getting into, you know, I grew up in the 70s and quaaludes and barbiturates and two and all second alls and cocaine acid, you know, a lot of the recreational fun drugs that we call them. I was ingesting smoking pot. And I just, you know, I always wanted to deflect from reality. You know, yeah. I like getting high. I like what it did to me. I like the way it made me uh, disconnect from what was truly going on in life. I had a learning disability, I truly believe, with reading and writing at a young age. And it was very difficult for me to comprehend the message a teacher was giving. So I tuned it out later to become ADHD, as we now recognize it. Sounds like there was some misunderstanding maybe on the part of your of the mentors in your life at that time in your early childhood about who you were. There was maybe some a little bit of miscommunication happening there because of some of what you're talking about. Well, I don't think they were so versed back then to deal with what the way yes. they are today. So parents would always say, Oh, he'll snap out of it. The teacher's like, he'll get better. This isn't something that we truly worry about. So those were some of the things that I heard growing up. Today, I realize how different it is. It truly is. Yeah, understood. Great. All right, Dana, so your turn. Let's see. Let's hear a little bit more about you. 
Uh, well, I grew up in a home with addiction, um, and then, of course, left home and looked to for that comfort level and sought out relationships where I could repeat uh, being an enabler and, and codependent and taking care of someone. And so I gravitated towards other addicts even before David. So I don't know if we've mentioned David and I are ex-spouses, but um, we met in Minnesota, and uh, he had been in treatment about three years prior to me meeting him. And I had come to Minnesota and gotten to therapy for my part in peace um, with always um, needing those addictive relationships. I say the addict was addicted to the substance, but I was addicted to the addict. And yes. so, uh, yeah. you know, I played a role in there and I, I needed to figure that out so I could stop repeating the mistakes of my past in those relationships. So by the time David and I had met, we were both on these paths of recovery, so to speak. Um, David was clean and sober for three years. I thought I had, I found a good addict, right? Like this one already gets it. He's been through it. He's uh, self-realized and evolved and he's my perfect man. And then um, uh, that, that was all well and good until he had knee surgeries and relapsed um, on uh, painkillers that were prescribed after his knee surgery. And then it was just a spiral for both of us because I got back into my enabling behaviors and turning a blind eye to keep the status quo. And David went off the deep end with his addictions. His opioids turned into heroin, um, picked up gambling that he had started when he was young, but picked it up with a vengeance um, once the other substances came into play. And uh, the next thing, you know, we know I had to get away and take care of my two children and try to make a make a better life for them than my mom had made for me as a child with my dad. That was very important to me. And so we divorced and um, David suffered his consequences, which I will let him go into. And then we knew we had a story to tell. So um, we wrote a book called Addiction Rescue, the No BS Guide to Recovery. Uh, we're both certified um, recovery coaches. I'm also a family recovery coach, which is really important to me um, because a lot of the emphasis is placed addict and it's important for me to help those families that kind of get left in the wake of destruction from addiction and here we are um you know with a business and and helping as many people as we can and being an advocate for those struggling with their own or someone else's addiction very good yeah that's just really powerful so you guys are doing work together even after your relationship isn't the way it used to be is that what i'm hearing exactly yeah okay all right, Jamie, um, anything you'd like to add on the the other side of the story? <laughs> well, Dana, I just have a couple of questions for you. You had mentioned that you turned a blind eye to, you know, the things that you were seeing when David had relapsed and or with the, you know, after the surgery. What were some of the things that were coming up for you that you were kind of willing to turn a blind eye to that later you weren't willing to? Well, first and foremost was the amount of pills he was taking, right? Because his prescriptions obviously ran out and then he was just buying them on the black market. And of course he was taking 18 times as much as the prescribed uh, amount was at the end. And then what I really couldn't take anymore was the gambling because we were getting in so steep financially. And, um, and I just knew it was a, uh, one-way train wreck that I had to jump off. So, um, you know, we had a very, very successful brokerage firm um, and that allowed the income that 
was generated through there allowed David to have his habits. And once I saw that it was just a matter of time till that all came crashing down, I had to jump off. Uh, but I wanted to keep the status quo, right? I love my lifestyle. I wanted to keep my girls in the lifestyle where I'm making, you know, millions of dollars. Um, I didn't want to, that's what made me turn a blind eye. It's like, well, you know, it's this or the abyss of the unknown. And I had to, took me two years to get ready to realize that the abyss of the unknown was, was far better potential than where I was at. Wow. I really feel that. And you know, the wording that you use about being an enabler is what I refer to myself as today. You know, I didn't know I was being an enabler. I didn't realize it. And then afterwards you're like, wake up, like, whoa, there's actually some on my part here too. You know, I needed to be needed. And unfortunately, would you say, you know, one of the other questions that I have is, would you say, um, like some of the emotions that you felt during that process, words that came to mind, did you feel hopeless or helpless at all? Oh, absolutely. Which is why I stayed in it, right? Because I didn't see hope or outside of the situation I was in. And like I said, that unknown um, is a very hopeless feeling. Um, I, you know, people would always say, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And I just got to the point where it didn't matter if it was green or not. I just didn't want to be in the grass I was in. Yeah, I'm feeling what you're saying, Dana. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. All right, David, let's dig into the next step, which is you decided to make a change. I guess we've heard from Dana a little bit about the lead up to that. But from your perspective, how did that look? And when did you decide to make a change in your life? Make a commitment to improve or heal your addiction? Well, I mean, when I first moved to Minnesota, I was intervened on August 31st or August 30th of 1989. I was waiting for a bed in Minnesota, and they sent me on a one-way ticket out to uh, Hazleton Betty Ford, and I began the journey there. I really dug into recovery, got into AA, got a sponsor, started doing a lot of service work, went to commitments, volunteering, sponsoring men, very active, was doing the steps, and um, my life was getting better every year by doing the right thing. And I was really committed to the program. I was watching people fall in front of me left and right. And I kept marching. And, you know, there comes a time when it's almost as if complacency sets in. And it was probably the 12 to 14 year mark where I ended up having some knee surgeries. When I look back, I wasn't probably in the right spiritual mind or state to be able to deal with what was going on. And, you know, I started taking large quantities of prescription meds, opioids, and eventually heroin when the opioids ran out a few years later. And again, a woman who was working for me kind of intervened and we set up a place for me to go detox from this and stay in a 21-day facility. Okay. So you've got really two journeys. Uh, Well, I mean, it's one journey. It's you. But the first time was almost, let's see, 23 years ago or so. 32. 32. Okay. So you, yeah, sorry, you got the numbers down better than I do. All right. So 32 years ago, there was the time where you initially dealt with the addictions, but then later on, so you said, what did you say? 12 to 14 years? Yeah. So in the early 2000s is when Dana and you were together and there was that next level of, oh, 
I still do have something inside me that is looking for something. And, uh, and then you had that next journey where you, it ended up with someone helping you and offering, Hey, do you think maybe a detox program would, would work good for you? Is my understanding good there, David? Like that's how it looked. Yeah, because the woman was my assistant and she was, you know, she had been in recovery also. She said, I just fear you're going to die any day. I had really gotten to the point where taking massive amounts of dope and just really didn't care. I was unhappy. You know, when I look back on it, there was a lot of things I was unhappy with. I was married, but, you know, I look back and see a piece of the loneliness in the marriage. I see a piece of um, a disconnect. I saw, you know, many different reasons, yeah. right, why I wasn't available to wanting to um, continue on that journey. And I took the first two pills and I just felt like, wow, this feels really good. Wow, this is relief. Yeah. So when we go into that state of, okay, I got to numb this, I've got to deal with it. So at that point, it seems like we shift into just an incredible amount of voices in our head when we're when we're sober to say okay i've got to manage this situation i gotta somehow make it look like i'm okay did you have any experiences like that i don't think so i think that's all part of the characteristics of addiction you know knowing how to present ourselves when inevitably not being ourselves and so that was just ran hand in hand with using yeah so it wasn't even something you were necessarily conscious of, but it was happening automatically because you, you knew how to do that. Well, I navigated that landscape my whole life, so that wasn't something difficult. Yeah. You know, I was in the same arena that I had been in most of my life, so I understood, you know, how to balance it. At least I thought. But we often say addiction, right? It's like, you know, you know walking around with your fly open, everyone sees it but you. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that's really what was happening here. Yeah. So coming out of detox that second time, what what did you notice the different? Did you notice any differences? I mean, obviously, there's the obvious difference, but just the freedom of not having that overhead in your mind. Well, the amount of pills that I was taking, you know, it took really three to six months for the cobwebs to dissipate. I remember coming back into the recovery rooms and riddled with shame. Mm -hmm. I had had all this time, and now I'm going back to this deal again. People are treating me like a newcomer, and my attitude was, F you, I've been around this thing longer than you've been alive, pal. Yeah. You know? And it was quite humbling. Yeah. Which was truly the essence of what recovery is, right? Humility, accountability, and um, responsibility. And it was very difficult. I often see guys and gals that come back in and a lot of them don't stay because of that shame. Yes. And we could talk about shame. We could talk about how shame reverts into our trauma, which I believe that anybody that has any type of addiction has trauma in their life. Yes. The people that are traumatized aren't necessarily addicted. So really at the foothold of addiction is trauma. I totally agree. Yeah. And even so in the first couple episodes of our podcast, we go through my story and in detail, but I'll just mention here, you know, I think that when you're going down that road of trying to heal, it gets really, it's like every time you make some progress, you want to hold on to that. Right. And so when suddenly there's a reversion back to the same old 
addicted self, it's like you don't want to go there more, right? Like it's like so until we get to that point where we're like, oh, I'm completely different. I'm going to be make a new commitment in my life uh, and really dig into the why. It seems like there's challenge there around shame and start telling people, you know, start really opening up. Yeah, I think I knew the why. I always knew the why, so I really didn't have to discover it. It was um, it was something that was always buried there. I knew what it did when I got high. It made me feel good. I like that feeling. I had been programmed at such a young age that this is how it made me feel. I remember taking my driver's ed class with three other people, and we would smoke pot every day before it. And I said, well, I'm going to be driving high anyway. Might as well learn how to drive high. So it was everything, every activity. All right. So now you've really entered a period of your life where you've dealt with this. As you, Anything you want to say about the consequences of all this and, and how you dealt with that? Well, the consequences are always quite alarming. We often say addiction is like driving a vehicle around with no brakes and eventually, you know, you're going to crash into something and there are consequences. Hopefully they're not severe. Mine were incredibly severe. You know, many losses, loss of a marriage, loss of a very successful business, loss of my freedom for five years. I was sentenced to federal prison because of this as well. And yeah, that's um, it's a powerful thing. You know, the losses add up and you're doing a, a P&L statement and you're looking at your profit and losses and there's a lot more losses that's eventually the person or business is going to go bankrupt. And that's what happened. Wow. Yeah, the struggle was there. So after you dealt with those consequences, then what is the superpower or what is the changes that have come in your life? I think we've touched a little bit on them, but let's dive into what do you do now and how do you help others and what did the struggle give you? The struggle gave me an understanding of what is recovery compared to abstinence, right? There's truly a fine line between abstinence and sobriety. I equate sobriety with recovery. You know, treatment gave me more of a discovery. And I think recovery or the rooms really taught me about recovery. And, you know, when I go to AA meetings, I go to all different sorts of meetings. I've gone to Al-Anon meetings, which I still do some. And it, it gave me an understanding as to where you want to be, right? There's a moment of clarity that comes when you finally begin to realize where you're at compared to where you want to be in life. But before we do that, it's almost like you do an autopsy on these situations and you begin to cleanse the wreckage of your past. And when you've gone through what I have gone through, and as well as many others who I still speak with, whether it's addiction, incarceration, that cut is extremely deep. And the pain of that cut is extremely deep. Many people wake up every single day and it's just hard to really get started. You know, get to size 14s to hit the ground and say, okay, let me get the self-esteem meter in the go zone. It's a process to get it there some days. But I understand what it takes today. And it has a lot to do with gratitude, gratitude that my life was saved, my life was spared. You know, being an interventionist on the front line fighting addiction, I see many people who don't make it through this. I often say I've been the pallbearer at many funerals, too many funerals. The numbers are staggering what we're seeing today. It's not enough people really trying to dispense that message of hope to people that are feeling completely hopeless in situations that they're in. So yeah, it's uh, pretty powerful to go through something like this. Yeah, can you 
Can you guys, either one of you, talk a little bit about some of the success stories that you've had with your work? I'll go ahead because I know David doesn't like to boast. He has done a lot of great work. Um, one of the most significant, I think, was uh, the Minnesota laws. Um, he got the bill passed on opioids to hold Big Pharma accountable. He was a huge part of that success. Uh, he's done a documentary for PBS um, on the o- opioid crisis. Um, he worked with the CDC on their RX awareness campaign. Um, he's in commercials on billboards uh, on the side of city buses all over the nation. And that campaign just won about eight different awards nationally and internationally, including an Emmy. So that was really exciting and uh, proud for him to be a part of that. Um, he does public speaking all over the country. Um, he's an interventionist that um, also travels the country. Uh, a lot of interventionists work locally. David will go anywhere for anyone um, to you know, save the day, so to speak. He's just got that, that in him. Together, we coach a lot of families, both those that are struggling with addiction and the family members that, you know, are affected uh, because of that addiction. Um, what else, David? Can you think of anything else? Yeah, well, you know, we've done a bunch of podcasts and writings and, you know, we collaborated on a book and just trying to get the message out there, whatever it might be. We do a lot of work that's um, pro bono work, a lot of the stuff you really don't get paid for. It's sitting in the meetings. It's sitting in, like Dana was said, I sat in the Capitol for nine months with a team of probably uh, 10 people and passed the first legislation on the opioid epidemic and created the Opioid Stewardship Bill in Minnesota to hold the pharmaceutical companies accountable, increase registration fees, and use the money proactively for education, prevention, Narcan, things that are really assisting. And the money's being used properly right now. Because if we go back and look at truly what is the essence of this, where does it begin? How do we create prevention through education, right? I remember growing up and, you know, maybe there was a health day. They talked, we remember specifically what they said about cigarettes, but I don't remember alcohol. I don't remember them talking about drugs. That conversation was short-lived, but it's interesting how they really harped on the cigarettes. And if we did more work like that today and really spent more time with the youth, I think we can really begin to curtail some of this. That's a piece of it. You know, it also comes down to parenting and uh, social skills and socializing with your kids and the involvement. But that's for another conversation. I went a little off. Yeah, that's fine. No, I think it's just so important to, that's why we're doing this podcast is to get the message out there that there is hope and that you know, we can get past this. What about, so if we're thinking about our audience today, those that potentially still have an addiction, what would each of you respectively, you know, from the standpoint of the enabler and the addict want to tell those people? So using the word enabler and codependency, we hear that quite often, right? Those are two words really attached in the Al-Anon model. Every family who, every person who has kids for the most part, is going to be codependent, right? They're going to do somewhat of enabling. And I think that codependency is okay if it's done through healthy boundaries and if they create these boundaries. But for the most part, if they're not done, then it's unhealthy codependency. And I think that, Dana, you could take it from there also, I think. Sure. So, and Kevin, I I guess I didn't quite understand your question. Is this directed towards somebody struggling with addiction or somebody that's affected by somebody else's struggling with addiction, and happy to address both as well. Well, I think if you could speak to the person that might be enabling, 
Uh, we think that hopefully both are listening, but obviously those of us that are addicts aren't always looking for the help that might be here. So we're hoping that the people that are enabling can get help here and then be encouraged to spread and share this with their the addict in their life. So speaking to the enabler for a minute, if, if you would. Absolutely. So my experience was uh, I had a boyfriend that I that went into treatment. And when I took him to treatment, I was talking to his counselor um, outside before he went in, kind of telling her everything that was wrong with him and what she needed to fix. And she looked at me and she said, you need to go to Al-Anon. And I said, what's Al-Anon? I, you know, this, this was years ago. I know I didn't know anything about addiction. And so she kind of explained, you know, what Alan was. And I was like, Oh no, 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 I don't have a problem. You don't understand. This is his problem. And she just kept repeating, go to Al-Anon. And so I thought, all right, I'll be the dutiful girlfriend and I'll go to Al-Anon because it's, it's what I'm doing to fix him. And it wasn't long until I realized, Oh, I have a part in this equation. And that's what I would really try to emphasize to anybody listening to this is that whether you're enabling or codependent, there's five different roles you can play. There's the scapegoat, there's the mascot, there's a hero. Everybody plays a role in a, in a relational system with an addict, right? Addict is just one of the six, right? And they probably are taking on one of those other five roles. And they have to figure out which role that is because all six of them, not just the addict role, is dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional relationship. And until you figure out what your place in that is and how you fit into that equation, nobody's going to get better and find recovery. And the best thing you can do for your addict, rather than trying to help them get the help they need, is get the help that you need. Because when you step out of the role, it gives them permission to look at the roles and maybe step out for themselves. So finding your own recovery is the best way for your loved one to find their recovery. Wow, that's powerful. I'm pretty sure I know that uh, I know who I was putting in the scapegoat role, Jamie. <laughs> in those systems, we can take on more than one of those roles, too. You know, we can have characteristics of all of them, if not a couple of them. Because I yeah. said she was codependent enabler. So she was that role and the scapegoat role, is what you're saying. Absolutely. And probably the hero sometimes, too, although I'm sure I took that role myself at times thinking, oh, well, I'm really making progress. Meanwhile, not really. All right. So this has been really incredible, just the complexity. I didn't know that going in. Uh, I knew a little bit about you and I did some research, but uh, wow, a lot more here than than what I had expected. So, so David, as we're going down the road and like what you want to do with the rest of your life now that you've gone beyond this and, and is this what you want to do for the rest of your life is help people? What are you thinking for the future? Yeah, I think this is, you know, I say the two greatest days of our life, the day we're born, the day we realize why we're born. But when you're struggling with any type of addiction and you begin to find your purpose, your gift seems to illuminate. And it's not really considered work. It's considered joy when I get to do. And, you know, when you're really on the front line and you're dealing, you might be the lifeline between them wanting to kill themselves and get in recovery. I want the ball in my hand with 10 seconds left in the game. I want to be that guy. You know, I want to have that opportunity to really uh, dispense the message of hope to somebody and lead them down the path of recovery. And I love what I'm doing. And if I couldn't run for public office, this is what I would be doing. Understood. So, all right. Are you running for public office? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. But someday I've often had thoughts of, yeah. That would be awesome. I mean, I, I applaud the uh, 
I've, there's been some CEOs that have done TEDx's on coming out about their addiction, whether, you know, the ones that I've paid attention to are the uh, former pornography addicts, but I'm sure there's all kinds of other addicts that haven't, you know, been at the top of an organization or whatever, use their platform to talk about that and having more people in office to that know the, especially like you do, what's happening on the ground. So can I put myself in the chair of being the one that's 10 seconds left in my life? Um, what do you tell me? Well, 10 seconds left in the game, right? If you're in, in the an game, intervention. Sorry. Yep. What do you tell somebody? When someone is feeling like there is no way out, and when you begin to say you don't have to keep living the way you've been living and feeling the way you're feeling, that's a message of hope that you don't have to keep doing this. Yeah. We have found a different solution to what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Problem is when you're in the throes of your addiction, your higher power becomes the next hit, the next snort, the next drink, whatever it is. So that's why when we begin to remove the substances, you know, when I sobered up, I said, God, if I could just stop using, my life would be great. And we come to realize that, you know, alcohol was but a symptom of the manifestation of all the other stuff that I had going on. And that's what recovery is about, digging and cleansing and figuring that stuff out. And if I often get people to say, we're going to sit in a place, the reason it's 21 to 28 days to develop new habits and patterns. And when someone is feeling like jumping off the bridge, I'll bring something into this real quick. I'm working on an intervention in the Midwest right now, and I've met with the family on a conference call, seven of them. And uh, the father has been drinking for years, um, 68 years old. His daughter went over and saw him last weekend. He fell down, knocked his head. The ambulance and cops were called, and he refused to get help. And she witnessed this trauma, and he's sitting there bleeding, and he won't go to the hospital, telling the cops to get out of there. After this happened, we were on a call about a week later, and she said, this has been the most traumatic thing I've ever experienced. I thought about taking my life every single day this week. So we had to reframe the conversation from talking about her dad to everyone on the call working with her and letting her know the support that we're going to give her and that we're going to check in on a daily basis and offer her some tools and journaling. And, you know, when someone begins to talk about the pain that they're in, that's the first chance. But when they deny the reality of what's truly happening, they don't have to do anything about it. So we say, you know, with the acceptance that there is a problem, that's where change comes. So we're trying to move people out of that denial state. And the five stages of change, you know, the pre-contemplation, contemplation, we're trying to move them into an area of action, right? We don't have to worry about the maintenance part, but as soon as they get to the contemplation, actually thinking about that, that's where we begin to know that we have to continually work with them and push them to get to that deeper level. Yeah, that makes so. What I'm hearing from you is a lot. I mean, that's there's a lot of benefits to what you're doing, but from an addict's standpoint, what I heard right up front is you are offering them hope just by being there. The fact that you've been through this and you made it out of it. I've lived it and lived through it, and people get to see that. Rather than someone said, well, I read the book, and the DSM says you should be feeling like this, or you know, you might have bipolar personality disorder, and also a piece of the addiction. And I say, you know, I understand the loneliness, the pain, the isolation, being withdrawn, you know, the shame attached to going through what you're going through, mm-hmm. constantly letting people down. And when they do that, the word that they used 80 years ago when they started 
recovery. They started Alcoholics Anonymous when a, you know, a stockbroker in New York went to Akron, Ohio to meet a doctor. The same word that they used back then is the word we use today, that one alcoholic identified with another alcoholic. And that's where the spirit came. They realized together we could do what I could not do alone. Yeah. Yeah. So just, so you're, you're really doing two things. You're, you're being there, showing them that there's hope by the fact you've gone through it. And you're also saying, hey, I'm an addict, and or I was, and so I understand what you're going through, and you're allowing them the, the opportunity to deal with their shame with you. Yeah, I don't ever say that I was an addict. For me, this thing is about, you know, then I'm tempting myself, which if I'm saying that I'm an addict in recovery. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right? I'm recovering, recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of body and mind. But now I'm allowing the boys in the committee upstairs by saying I am I was an addict for the obsession to begin to creep in and the thoughts of them wanting me to do things that I shouldn't be doing. So yeah. I never disposed that thought of I was. You know, I am and always will be addicted to anything that makes me feel good. And I know the progression of this disease. So some of the terminology that I use is important as well. Understood. Yeah. We all have our own journey and the language that we have along with it. So I, t- I totally appreciate what you're saying. All right. So I know you have another call. So um, just from a wrap up standpoint, just appreciate you guys being on here. I know you have a very busy schedule, both of you very much appreciate being on the, on the podcast. And there's, uh, I think we could probably have a follow up <laughs> easily because there's just so much that, that you guys are doing as well as have experienced and both together and then David prior to when you knew Dana. But from the bottom of my heart, just thankful for what you're doing and the way, the way you're impacting people and helping them. And uh, hope, hopefully we can do our little part by getting your story out there yet again and see if we can impact more people. Great. We'd like to give you a plug on the book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. The name of the book is Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery, and it is on Amazon. You can find it there. And it's, uh, you know, Dana's a great writer, and she put my story together, and we collaborated on this, and there's going to be a memoir coming out shortly. Uh, We're working on that. Very good. The follow-up of that, Dana's working now as a family coach and doing some good, really good things with the families. Because we know addiction is a family disease yes. and the recovery is one together. And that if just because the person struggling with addiction gets sober, the family often says, well, I don't have to do anything about it. And usually the results are uh, not great of what happens to them. But once everyone comes together and works on this thing and really takes a look at their piece in this and their side of the street, you know, recovery works in all facets. People don't, just because you're not struggling with any type of physical addiction or process addiction, there are still things that we're all recovering from. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, Especially with our first three boys, we've been started that process with them, just like working through some of what I worked through and trying to help them process some of that stuff as they get a little bit older. Go ahead, Dana. I just wanted to say that David and I can be reached at at the website, uh, which is The Life Recovery Coach. Dot com. 
Sounds very good. So um, there again, just thank you both. And hopefully we can reach out to you again in the future as we continue this journey. Let us know. We'd be glad to be a guest again. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Really good luck with your podcast. And uh, thank you for having us. And, you know, hopefully if somebody received this message today, that's all we're hoping for. And if you're looking for help, there's always a place that we go. And I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes. The one who plants trees knowing that he will never sit in their shade has at least started to understand the meaning of life. <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not about us. So, yeah. You know, very good. All right. Thank you both. And we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. And to stay in touch, email us at info at businessaddictspodcast.com.